Welcome, everybody, to the very first Tennis Worthy podcast brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and I'm excited to kick off this inspiring new podcast that will bring you conversations with Hall of Famers and tennis legends that go beyond their on-court results. Each year, the International Tennis Hall of Fame celebrates the sport's greatest players and contributors by presentation of tennis's ultimate honor, Hall of Fame induction. This exclusive recognition represents the sum of a person's career as being truly at the top of the game, the best of the best. As we are dedicated to preserving tennis history and celebrating those incredible champions, we frequently ponder the question of what makes a Hall of Famer? What is that unique something that led to their historic success? Was it innate or did they need to cultivate a winning mindset? Answering these questions and more is what the Tennis Worthy podcast aims to do. Chris Bowers, an esteemed tennis journalist of more than three decades and biographer of Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, will be chatting with our legendary guests here on Tennis Worthy. And first up, just ahead of the Australian Open, is the most recent inductee into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and someone you might say bleeds green and gold, Aussie great Leighton Hewitt. That never-say-die attitude won me so many matches that I probably wouldn't have won under different circumstances. I felt like at that age that, you know, you could run through a brick wall and then the next day you'd be fine. In terms of a ball-striking match, I don't know if I've ever hit the ball better. To start number one for a whole year, is um, it's not easy because there's a target on your back every single week. I've always loved the history of the sport and to somehow... I've had a small part in that now is, is something really special. Leighton, as you know, is a two-time major champion, finished back-to-back -back years at number one in the world, helped lead Australia to two Davis Cup crowns. But it's his deep intensity, his unrelenting drive, and never-say-die attitude to which Leighton attributes his success. You'll hear about that and what it was like to grow up amongst a family of very successful Aussie rules players and how pride for country was instilled in him. And of course, that come on that he was so famous for. Where'd that come from? And how did it help him on the court on his path to winning? I'll leave you now with Chris Bowers and Leighton Hewitt. Chris, take it away. Leighton Hewitt, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? What quality, what aspect, what do you think the biggest thing is that elevates you above the rest? I don't know about elevates me above the rest, but yeah, I think my never-say-die attitude, always getting the most out of myself, that gave me the best chance to get the success that I was able to get on the court. You know, that never-say-die attitude won me so many matches that I probably wouldn't have won under different circumstances, I guess, and, and just having that inner belief as well. You know, tennis is not just uh, about hitting a ball over the net. So many players can do that, and if you look at the top 200, 300 players in the world, there's very little that separates them in terms of ball striking. So there's a lot more that goes into being a tennis player. Um, I think the physical demands, but also the mental demands as well, and, and trying to have as close to the perfect whole package as possible. Where did those two things, the the belief, the never-say-die attitude, where, where did they come from? Uh, I'm not really sure. A lot of people ask me, you know, the competitive juices, where did that come from? I, I can't put my finger on it. Obviously, something must be in my the genes. Um, you know, I came from a sporting background, um, whether that had something to do with it. Australian rules football was 
what I prided myself on. That's what I wanted to play as a young kid growing up. Even when I first started having tennis lessons, I, I still wanted to play AFL football. Um, my father, grandfather and uncle all played it professionally. That's what I'd go and watch every weekend. Um, and I love the team aspect of it as well. But AFL football is a it's a tough sport and it's a brutal sport and there's nowhere to hide. And in a lot of ways, that's how I my mindset was to tennis. And I think that in somehow, some crazy fashion, that's how I brought the competitive side of that to tennis. And that's how I played it. Did you pick up some of the locker room mentality through yeah. your dad and your uncle and your yeah, grandfather? Yeah, absolutely. I guess AFL football scene in a lot of ways is you don't show anything. You know, you, you don't show anyone if you're injured. You don't show anyone if you're hurt. And it doesn't matter how much pain you're going through, you're going to keep fighting and find a way. And a lot of that, you do that because you've got teammates on the sideline that you don't want to let down, obviously. Um, in tennis, it's not like that. But I, I think 100% that's where it, a lot of things came from for me. But also my love for Davis Cup and playing in any kind of team aspect 100% came from not being able to play AFL football. That was probably the one thing that I, I missed the most about playing tennis. It's great that you're in control of your own destiny on a tennis court and there's nowhere to hide because it's just a one-on-one -on -one battle and no one can help you once you're out there. But it's also, I love doing it for your mates and your captain and coach on the sideline. Um, and I think you know when you do have success, it means a lot more when you can celebrate with those people. We'll come back to team sports in a minute, but... Was there a point where you were aware in a tennis context that you had a lot stronger competitive instinct than many of the other kids around you? I'm not sure. I think in juniors, I, you know, even the under-14s when I went over to Europe, it was my second trip to Europe. The first year I went, and I was a year out of my age group. The second year I went and won three out of the four tournaments over there and played on clay, European clay, um, which we never play on in Australia. We grew up on hard courts. So in terms of that and just my competitiveness and um, passion and, and leaving it all on the court, I, I still remember times in that junior tour where I did that and I felt like I did it better than a lot of the other kids at that age group. And that's something that sort of continued on. And it's probably one of the main reasons why I was able to have that self-belief and drive to be able to make the transition from juniors to seniors very quickly as well at the age of 15 or 16 uh, and have success against older, bigger guys and basically men when I was still just a kid at the time. Were you tall as a child? Because you ended no. up at, what, 180, 5'11"? Yeah, 5'10 five, and, yeah, five, and a half. Just, I'd like to say 5'11", but probably just under. Um, but no, I, I was always on the smaller side in juniors as well. And did that add extra to your competitive instinct? Uh, potentially a little bit, um, because I knew I probably wasn't going to have the, the biggest weapons out there, so I had to work on other areas and make those areas very strong uh, physically mentally there a lot of those areas though are the things that you control whereas there's certain parts of a tennis game that you can't control uh, a lot depends on how well your opponent serves on a particular day you know I can return unbelievably well but if they hit their spots on their serve then it's going to be awfully hard for me to to do a lot about that physically and mentally they're two things that you can control going into a match and so I think that always helped me um, because I felt like at a lot of times, especially at my best, then yeah, I probably had a lot of the other competitors covered in, in those areas. Did you ever develop a mindset of 
it's them against me, it's them against us. The way Jimmy Connors was encouraged to believe that they're out to get you, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, certainly at times I did. Probably used that more in uh, that mindset in Davis Cup, to be honest, and, and probably in a way ties. Um, when you're playing and you've got people screaming against you and, and you really just have to focus on your player bench and your captain and coach on the side of the court. Apart from, you know, it was sort of our backs against the wall kind of mentality, which is something I, I liked. Um, but also, you know, I was a big fan of the Rocky movies growing up as well. And so there were certain times when, you know, I would I'd twist it in my mind that, you know, that was the situation I'd been put in. And, and I enjoyed that. Um, and, and some of my greatest victories in Davis Cup were those away ties when, you know, the chips are down and, and you've got to find a way to somehow pull through and, and that's about bonding together with your teammates as well. There was one away tie in Florinopolis where you beat Gustavo Curtin and you didn't even realise you'd won it. Yeah, that whole weekend was a bit surreal, to be honest. Um, we had police escorts from the resort we were staying in, which was about 50 minutes away from the courts. And I just remember we had Brazilians on the side of the road when we were driving, just booing and screaming and throwing stuff at our vans. And we'd get to the courts and, you know, just have the police escorts walking around with the security everywhere. And to go out there and play Guga, um, who was, you know, won the French Open a couple of times by then, I think he was world number one, defending French Open champion. And we kind of came out with a game plan that we had to really focus on beating Melangini, who was a very complete clay court player in his own right. Uh, we had to focus on winning those two singles and then obviously the doubles. But then it got to a stage where we were 2-1 up going into that fourth match and I got to play Gustavo in, in the fourth match. That was like his backyard as well where he grew up in Florinopolis. And I was able to, to win in straight sets somehow on, on a very slow clay court, which obviously wasn't my favourite surface. And probably go down as one of my greatest matches of all time to be honest and to do it in those conditions and you know to have Fitzy on the sideline with me and and be able to enjoy it with my teammates um a guy like Pat Rafter who was a guy I idolized growing up and was like an older brother to me that really took me under my wing there was something pretty special about that time do you remember what you were thinking when you had those Brazilian fans booing your bus was there a conscious thing of right they are not going to emerge victorious from this. Yeah, part of it. Um, there's no doubt that that probably switched me on in a lot. You know, they sort of stoked the bear in a lot of ways. I was probably, uh, when I was at my best, especially, I was probably, um, yeah, not the right person to be doing that to because it just made me more determined uh, to either prove people wrong or to go out there and compete and just not let it happen. And that was certainly one of those situations. The same thing happened... In my first match in the 2000 Davis Cup final in Barcelona against Albert Costa as well, where I won in five sets that day. And, you know, they'd had public enemy number one was my face on the front of the newspaper uh, on the morning of that match. So, you know, just little things like that. But, um, you know, I had unbelievable captains as well. I had John Newcomb in that time and then obviously Fitzy in Brazil. But, you know, Nuke was unbelievable at motivating players and being able to get the best out of them um, and he certainly knew my personality and what was going to work for me. But some players in those situations can become so determined that they're not going to let that kind of intimidation win that they don't play their best. What allows you to play your best in those circumstances? Yeah there's something about switching on my focus I think and, and uh, at that stage I, I was able to stay focused and you know even though as much as people saw me get pumped up on the court 
sometimes in those environments, it, I actually didn't get as pumped up. Uh, you know, it would just be a small amount of emotion to the side bench and, and I, I would only naturally get fired up on an absolute crucial stage that I felt like I needed to, um, which was going to help me. And, and so in a lot of ways, I tried to take the crowd out of it in those matches and just focus on what I needed to. But yeah, you can either sink or swim in those occasions. And I think that's in a lot of ways, the true test of the old Davis Cup format uh, was in five set battles when you're not just playing for yourself, you're playing for a lot more important things than uh, going out and just playing for your surname. Did you ever doubt yourself at any stage in your career? Did you ever think, Do you know, I wonder whether I've got enough to really make it? Oh, I, at certain stages, you absolutely doubt yourself. You know, for me, it was probably after winning Adelaide the first year as a 16-year-old, and I'd qualified for the Australian Open the year before, but it was a pretty lonely year on tour that first year as a 16-year-old. I didn't have a a tour coach, uh, so my dad stopped his job in finance and just travelled with me. So I had someone travelling with me and and uh, you know looking after me on the tour that first year. And and yeah, you don't relate to a lot of the people. I was fortunate that I had some older Aussie guys, uh, not just on the singles but on the double circuit as well. And they would sort of play doubles with me in the odd tournament and at least practice sessions and stuff like that. But there's certain stages throughout that year I had to play a lot of qualifying at events and a lot of challenges. And even though I was only 16, I think people think after I won Adelaide that first time that just naturally you're just on tour. It just happens. But I was still ranked. I only went to, a, I don't know, 170 or something in the world. Like it wasn't like I'd cracked into every Grand Slam major in the main draw at that stage. So yeah, you know, I, I guess at times then you're still doubting yourself and when it's going to happen, but you've got to understand it's a process as well. I probably wanted everything yesterday instead of tomorrow, so I was always someone that was in a in a hurry um, for it to happen, and um, yeah, you know, probably frustrated me at times when it didn't happen soon enough, or you know, soon enough for me anyway. And how did you get over those moments? Did you just tell yourself that? You will make it. Did you have to be patient um, or what? Yeah, you have to be patient. Probably it made me work harder too. Yeah, I remember, you know, if I had bad losses, I, I still can remember pushing myself, whether it was hard that afternoon after a bad loss, even in junior tournaments or the next day for sure. And I would try and, you know, get it out of my mind as quickly as possible and move on to the next event. Part of your tennis education was at Peter Smith set up in Adelaide, a remarkable tennis coach. He had so many of the Australian greats, including a couple of people who ended up, one coaching you, Darren Cahill, and another contemporary of Cahill's, Peter Carter, ended up coaching Roger Federer. What did you pick up from Smith's setup? Uh, well, Smithy was an unbelievable technical coach. Um, so I was very fortunate that my parents sourced him out. So I started with him when I was six. And I had sessions with him uh, right through until I was 16, basically, and went on the tour, and I've had a great relationship with him ever since. But, yeah, he, he was a tough taskmaster, though, Smithy. Yeah, he didn't really care about results. It was all about the technique and, and trying to get that right from a young age. And, and there were certain times, numerous Sunday morning sessions, that I felt like I was doing it right, but he would, you know, stop the ball, walk down my end and demonstrate yet again that, no, I'm not doing it right. And um, it was a lot of talking in those sessions, I remember, but, uh, yeah, I didn't miss one Sunday morning session for the whole over 10 years that I was coached by Peter in Adelaide. And, you know, I look back now and just think how fortunate because he, he set me up with that mindset that I had to keep improving, keep striving to get better. We know that champions are stubborn, so did the young Leighton Hewitt happily take 
his strictness or did you sometimes rebel against it? No, not with Peter at all. Um, I think I just believed in the process that Peter was going through and had the utmost respect for for him and what he was teaching me as well. And, you know, there were certain stages, you know, I had a lot of squad sessions and stuff in Adelaide as well, but my main tennis sessions and working on my technique and my development was with Peter. Uh, and so I kind of put all my trust in him in a lot of ways. You had this really good run uh, when you were 18, 19. You got into the Davis Cup team. You did incredibly well. You beat Todd Martin in the Davis Cup centenary match. You played an awful lot of tennis then, but I remember one of your stock responses was, I'm 19, I don't get tired. Was that true or was that just a good line? No, I felt like at that age that, you know, you could run through a brick wall and then the next day you'd be fine. Yeah, whether that was my genes as well, I don't know, because um, I don't remember having a whole heap of physio and treatment and stuff like that that I certainly needed uh, in the second part of my career, second half of my career. So it's... Um, yeah, I think at that age, you just, uh, it's like playing junior tournaments. You play two or three matches in the one day. Um, and I was just able to do that. And yeah, I still remember, you know, the match against Todd was brutal conditions in Boston at the Longwood Cricket Club there in my first Davis Cup match. It was so hot. We had the American president, George Bush, uh, senior there, and also John Howard at the time at the match, who was our uh, Prime Minister of Australia. And yeah, it was uh, a surreal moment for me to, for the first time, getting my gold jacket and playing for Australia and playing singles alongside Pat Rafter, but then having John Newcomb and Tony Roach as my captain and coach as well. So I was very fortunate to be surrounded by um, champions of the game. Um, but yeah, I, I think physically, yeah, I felt like I could play all day back then. Because you pulled it off. I mean, what what made you pull off? You've just described so many potential obstacles. Davis Cup debut, still a teenager. What allowed you to pull it off? Well, I'd been groomed for Davis Cup, um, so I had been an orange boy two or three occasions before that as a 15, 16-year-old, and then I was probably, I was the fifth player, there was only four players in a team back then, and I was the fifth player probably three or four other times as well, where I travelled to Zimbabwe and all these other ties around Australia, um, but at the time we had um, Rafter, Philippousis and the Woodies. We had a pretty good team on paper, but we hadn't actually been able to win it. And so it took Mark Philippoussis actually getting injured um, at Wimbledon against Pete Sampras. And so we had the Davis Cup tie two weeks later in Boston. And, and that's when Nuke said, mate, you're getting the call up, you're playing. And he said, you're ready. You've done your apprenticeship. You're ready to take it on now. And, and having the belief from those kind of guys, that just instilled the belief that I was good enough. So, so you picked up the the gravitas of their reputation of Newcomb Roach and everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. To think that those guys have been to the pinnacle of the game. I'd seen what they'd done with Pat Rafter in terms of he was just a so-so player, especially through juniors, but also the first part of his career as well. And then Roachie and Newcomb really turned him into the player he was where he went on to win US Opens, finals of Wimbledon, got to world number one. And I remember sitting in the car with Pat and uh, just the drive to practice one day. We were in Boston and we were both in the back seat. And he was just sort of basically telling me or getting me to believe that I was good enough to win these big Davis Cup matches. And you have someone like that telling you that that's been there and done it. That just kind of reinforced to me. And, and I guess 
you know, I come back to people knowing my personality and what was going to push me the right way. And, and those people that got the most out of me were certainly Nuke, Rochi, Pat Rafter, John Fitzgerald, these guys that knew me better than anyone and how I was going to respond to certain situations. So what did it mean to you at the end of 1999 in Nice, indoor clay, to win the Davis Cup? It meant an awful lot, but it's something that... Um, yeah, I don't want to say I took for granted, but I didn't realise how tough it was to win in Davis Cup. You only worked that out in later years. Like my first five years on the tour, I played in four Davis Cup finals out of the five years. And, and you look back now and you think, gee, how hard was it to do that? Like it was pretty remarkable. I, we won that Davis Cup final and Pat wasn't in the team. So there was a certain sadness or disappointment about that because he was someone who I knew all he wanted to do was win the Davis Cup. And he was part of the journey, absolutely, but he wasn't in the team in the actual final. So there was still that disappointment or a loss because of that. But at the end of the day, the Davis Cup and winning for your country is bigger than any individual. And so, you know, if you've played a small part over the years, then you are part of that winning team in my mind. And, and especially Pat and what he did in Boston as well. And in the first round of that year, he played a massive part in us winning the Davis Cup in 99. Tennis Worthy is not just a podcast. It's also a video series dedicated to the triumphs and challenges Hall of Famers and legends have overcome. From Arthur Ashe to Billie Jean King's resiliency and Martina Navratilova's sacrifice of defecting from her homeland for a better future. Tennis Worthy tells the best stories of the game from the best players in the game through the defining values of tennis. To watch, visit TennisFame.com slash Tennis Worthy. When you shop at TennisFame.com, you're supporting the International Tennis Hall of Fame's mission to preserve tennis history, celebrate its greatest champions, and inspire tennis fans around the world. The shop is stocked with the best gifts for the tennis fan in your life, from performance fila apparel, hats, tees, and more. Shop now at shoptennisfame.com. Let's send it back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer Leighton Hewitt. Your Grand Slam and World Number One period began the second half of 2001. How important was winning the Davis Cup in 99, reaching the Wimbledon Mixed Doubles final in 2000, and winning the US Open men's doubles title in 2000 in preparing you for being a singles champion? Obviously, the Davis Cup playing in those big matches before beating Guga, um, you know, moments like that and, and going through those nerves of playing in big matches and helped me prepare for, you know, the pointy end of Grand Slam tournaments. Winning the US Open doubles with Max Mirini in 2000, which absolutely came out of the blue. I wasn't going to play doubles that particular week. And um, Sandon Stolly, who I played some doubles tournaments with and was a great mate of mine, he was good mates with Max Mirini. And, and Max didn't have a partner. And Sandon was basically pleading with me just to sign up and play with Max that week. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. And then he basically said, well, you know, Max doesn't have anyone, so can you at least sign in with him? If it gets too hard for your singles, then you can pull out. And so that was the agreement basically going into it. Um, it just worked out so well that I was continuing in uh, winning my singles matches, making it through to the semifinals that year of the singles, the US Open. But we were playing on all my off days, the doubles matches, so I never had to back up. Uh, it just worked out scheduling really well. 
Max and I sort of came in at the start with no real pressure or expectation, I guess. And in the second round, we played the Woodies. Um, we ended up beating them. That was their la- they were the number one seeds, the world number ones. And that was their last doubles match together in a Grand Slam. So uh, I quite often bring that up, especially the Teddy. Um, but we won 7-6 in the third in a tie break. And, um, yeah, we didn't really look back after that, Max and I. It was the only time we played together. If you think of the US Open 2001... At the time, everyone said, oh, well, it's a top-heavy draw. And by the time it got to the final, Sampras was a red-hot favourite against you. And yet, you played out of your skin. Yeah, I I'd, um, got better and better as the tournament went on. In the semi-finals, you know, no one probably talks about it that much. But I, in terms of a ball-striking match, I don't know if I've ever hit the ball better. I beat Evgeny Kofelnikov in the semis in very convincing fashion in straight sets. And... I just felt like I couldn't miss, to be honest. So being able to take that, that was on the Saturday afternoon where you had to back up and play the final the day after straight away. So for me, I felt very confident in how I was hitting the ball going into that final. It was more about whether you can control your emotions uh, and the pressure that comes with playing in a Grand Slam final. But yeah, I was pretty excited as well to get the opportunity to play Pete. Sampras, a guy that I idolised and looked up to, I was going in as the underdog. He was the favourite in, in that final. So, you know, that took a little bit of the pressure off, I guess, going into that one as well. And, and I wasn't really that nervous. I was more nervous about the the coin toss when I went up for that because Pete was standing on the other side of the net that I'm about to play. And I actually had Ivan Lendl doing the coin toss uh, for the final. And so for me, that was a surreal moment. These are two guys that I idolise, yet I'm about to play in a US Open final here against one of them and the other blokes tossing the coin for us. So, um, yeah, it was an amazing... I, I quite often look back at that photo still and, and can't believe I was in that position. So how did you control your emotions? I, I think having the belief... Um, that I was good enough to be there and, and having the belief in how I was playing and that I'd beaten Pete before as well. I'd beaten him on grass at Queens. Um, so that had given me you know, a lot of confidence going into that match. I knew how well my return of serve was, which was going to be so, so important, return of serve and passing shots on that particular match. But, yeah, the, the big talking point, I guess, going in was Pete hadn't been broken serve for so many games going in. I can't remember what it was now, but I remember in the press conference all the American journalists talking about how he can't be broken, and I kind of just dismissed it, didn't really think too much of it. And then I was returning first, first game, and I broke him in the opening game. And that's kind of when I said to myself, OK, well, no one else can break him, but I can. And I got broken the very next game, so it went back to one all, and then went on serve for the rest of the first set. But I was able to play a very clean tie break, and I won that first set in the tie break. Um, and from there, I just felt like Pete had some doubt in his mind, and that's when I really just tried to up it from there. And I hardly remember missing a return of serve or a passing shot for the match, which you know you you kind of feel like you're playing out of your skin in some some way it was a it was an out of body experience so yeah it was uh, something very special one of the least remembered parts of that final is it was just 38 hours before 911 had you left the city by the time the plane hit the twin towers yes i um the following morning after i won the us open you have to do the rounds of media and talk shows and all that but i had to get back for we had a davis cup semi final in sydney we were playing sweden uh, the following weekend. So I had to try and get out of there as, as soon as possible. Um, so after doing all that media stuff, I was on the 
the flight roughly around six o'clock uh, out of New York on the Monday evening. Um, so I flew across from New York to LA and then took the connection from LA to Sydney. And yeah, 9-11 happened on the Tuesday morning, I think between eight and nine o'clock, maybe something that time. So that happened while we were actually flying on the LA to Sydney flight at the time. It was weird because I was there was press conferences and everything meant to be happening as soon as I landed in Sydney. But as soon as we touched down in Sydney Airport, uh, the Federal Australian Police came on the plane and uh, said that nobody could leave and we had to fill out all forms and said there'd been uh, something had happened over in New York Airport and everyone had to fill out forms to whether they saw anything uh, that went before we left from New York. And you couldn't fathom how things had changed within that 12 hours, basically, since I'd been there. Uh, and walking around the streets of New York, and and obviously the press conference, everything uh, got cancelled in Australia, and um, yeah, it was a, a really weird moment for me, to be honest. Um, after being on such a high, and then now having questions about a lot of the people that I'd celebrated with, as well, uh, just 24 hours before, because I knew they were doing all the tourist things in New York, um, and what had happened around the World Trade Center. Yeah, it was a. a it was a tough period in my life, to be honest. Yeah. Did it dampen the sense of success? It puts everything into perspective, I guess. Um, and the US Open was just a tennis tournament in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, I, I had celebrated with some Australian rules football players that were over there, just potluck. They were on their end-of-season trip. So they came out. They were at the final when I beat Pete, and then they came out and celebrated with me on the Sunday night. And uh, I knew they were going to be going out and, and going to the World Trade. They were actually on their way that morning uh, when it happened. So there was just a lot of thoughts and worries about you know the people that were all caught up in that. And even that next year when I went back to defend my title, to think that, you know, the next time I went back to New York, uh, it had totally changed. You ended the year as world number one. You did that in Sydney because the uh, Tennis Masters Cup, the name then given to the ATP Finals, was moved to Sydney at fairly short notice. That must have been an immense satisfaction for you. Yeah, it was something um, I remember Pat Rafter and I talking about that we both wanted to make sure we qualify for the top eight that year once it had been decided it was going to be in Sydney. Um, it was pretty special to both be there playing in Sydney in our tour finals. Uh, you know, the best players from that whole year in 2001 getting the chance to play against each other. And um, for me, just to get the opportunity going into that Masters Cup, there was uh, three of us, myself, Gustavo Curtin and Andre Agassi, that could finish the year world number one, depending on results at the end of that event. And so that was, um, yeah, it was a lot of pressure going into that as well, knowing that that was a mar massive carrot dangling at the end of the tournament. Because it's not a normal tournament either, it's the round robin situation. And yeah, you can still get through to the semi-finals even if you lose, you know, one of your opening round robin matches. So um, yeah, you had to try and control your emotions for that as well. And for the third year running, you ended the year in the Davis Cup final. This one, a rare one, on grass at the Rod Laver Arena against the French. Yeah, it was the following week after um, after the Masters Cup. So. It was really demanding that end of year. Um, I, I was able to win the Masters Cup, but I actually strained uh, my hamstring uh, in the match against Pat, which not many people knew about, in the second set. Um, that match would end up seeing me clinch world number one, but I had a semi-final and final still to play at the Masters Cup. I was awfully close to pulling out. 
against Juan Carlos Ferrero in the semi-final. Half of my team was telling me that I should be pulling out and the other half was saying, no, you've got to this stage, you've got to try and give it a go. Um, I played with a lot of tape on my leg for the next two days. Um, I'm glad I was able to go out there and, and win the Masters Cup. It was something very special to do it in Sydney after just being crowned world number one. But it certainly hurt going out there and playing the Davis Cup final only a few days later on grass. The following year, you won Wimbledon. Remarkable achievement. Probably the first player, perhaps since Agassi, to win it totally from the back of the court. How do you look back on that Wimbledon tournament and in particular that achievement? Well, it's one of my proudest moments. Um, you know, Wimbledon growing up in Australia was seen as the biggest tournament there is in tennis in our sport. You know, especially Australians had done so well in the past at Wimbledon on grass. And um, my mindset playing on grass changed probably a year or two before that. Up until then in juniors and even when I first started playing on grass in the seniors, I was still looking to try and come to the net, you know, serve volley a certain amount of times. Um, it got to the stage where I think I had success at Queen's Club pretty much the year before, uh, two years before in 2000, and I basically backed my returns against the best servers in the world and decided to play grass court tennis on my terms. Um, I drew inspiration from looking at a guy like Andre Agassi and how he was able to do it at his best and beat one of the biggest servers in the game, who was Goran Ivanisevic at the time, in a final of Wimbledon from the back of the court. And so my mindset was, in terms of playing on grass, it actually helped my serve because I got a little bit more pop out of the court. Um, so if I could control my service games and hold my service games, then it was going to build pressure on my opponents. And then I backed my return of serve, especially when I was at the peak of the game, to get enough opportunities to break anyone in the world. And that's what I focused on. And so coming into that Wimbledon, I played extremely well in Queens. I was undefeated on grass going into Wimbledon, um, but I felt really confident and capable that you know going out there I was the best grass court player in the world at that stage. And and in the end, you know the semi final was probably built up as the final in a lot of ways because it was against Tim Henman, you know my old foe. We played a lot of matches. It was Australia against England. It was a battle of the ashes. But once again, it was played with the massive crowd going for Tim and. I love that situation. Um, so in a lot of ways, it uh, played into my hands very nicely. You spent the whole of 2002 as world number one. That is a phenomenal achievement if you think that rankings reflect consistency. Do you think that people give you the credit for that, that that kind of achievement warrants? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't often think about it too often, to be honest. But yeah, to start number one for a whole year, is um, it's not easy because... You know, guys like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic have made it look easy the last 10 years or so, or even longer, 15 years now. But it's certainly not easy because there's a target on your back every single week. Um, and so, you know, you are the hunted basically out there. And so that makes it a totally different mindset when you go on the court every single time. So that's what, when you see those three guys that I just spoke about, that's what makes their careers so incredible because they've basically had to deal with that every week for their whole careers. But for me, 2002, it, it was a frustrating start to the year because I actually felt like I was playing the best tennis of anyone in the world, even on hardcore at the start of the year, and then I got chicken pox. 
at the Holtman Cup. And so I went out in the Australian Open and couldn't compete properly. And then it took me a couple of months to get over the chicken pox. And so that was uh, a rough time for me uh, mentally, but also physically getting back to that level that I had to to compete, uh, which probably not a lot of people knew about at the time. Um, so that's what made it all the more special to win Wimbledon as well and, and finish the year number one, knowing that I wasn't able to play that early part of the year. There's two matches with Federer I'd just like to ask you about, both on the Rod Laver Arena. Davis Cup semi-final of 2003. Uh, Australia were 2-1 up, but Federer led you by two sets and 5-3. And somehow you managed to come back and you barely played any tennis in the second half of that year. You had a bunion, I think, that was treated. And you went on to win the Davis Cup final. What was it you were able to tap into from two sets to love and five three down to beat the newly crowned Wimbledon champion and somebody that everyone recognised was just a sublime talent? Yeah, there was certainly self-belief. I didn't doubt myself. I, I still... Even when I was in that situation and Roger was playing unbelievable, I still uh, believed that I was only a few points away from somehow turning that match around. Uh, up until that stage, I didn't think Roger had done anything wrong. Um, I didn't feel like I was playing badly, but I still felt like there was still a bit of tennis left in that particular match if I could break at 5-3 and I was able to do that. Um, whether he got a little bit nervous trying to close it out at that stage... But I, I remember you know, coming to that change of ends and Fitzy sitting down and just telling me, mate, there's a long way left in this match. You know, and, and you know, I was four points away. Or at one stage, I was two points away from losing the match. And so just that positive reinforcement that, you know, I, I felt like the longer the match went, it played into my favour as well, fitness-wise. Um, and then also just using the crowd to get behind me um, as the match went on and... I, I have so many memories, though, of Pat Cash coming back and beating Mikhail Pernforce in 86 in the Davis Cup final. I've watched that match, I don't know, over 100 times. At uh, Kuyong there on the grass court, and for me, I just had visions of that. That's all I wanted to do one day, was do that. And this was my version and my opportunity to be able to do it. And after I won the third set, I, I honestly believed I was going to win that match. Um from that stage forward. I won the tie break, but I'd look at Roger and I saw some doubt in his mind. And even though the fourth fourth set went tight and it ended up 7-5, I broke him to, to win it. Um, I still felt like I was in control. And then, yeah, there was no way I was going to lose once it went to a fifth. There were a lot of come-ons. You weren't known for your come-ons and your, your two gestures when you won big points, the lawnmower and the... Um... The, the logo yeah. gesture, uh, the flat hand up by the forehead. Did they just come naturally or were they calculated? I know there's one guy at the Australian Open, an Argentinian player who took exception when you did that, when he made mistakes. But was that part of your tactics or was it a totally natural expression of where you were? Yeah, no, it was a total, it was never something I ever thought about doing uh, it purely just came out in emotion at the time depending on the situation and how I was feeling um, the actual sign it's called the Visht uh, and it was actually Mats Verlander was the first to do it so it actually came from Mats and I used to go to the Australian Open and I actually watched Mats do it uh, to his Swedish fans back then as a kid growing up so you know uh, I just started copying it and doing it in junior tournaments I don't even know who I was doing it to and then it just gradually 
came on the tour. So I was I was lucky Matts had retired by the time that I came along that I never had to play him because that would have been embarrassing. I, there's no way I would have been able to do it if I had to play Matts. But he was a guy that I idolised growing up. Um, his game style, how he went about it. He was able to win the Australian Open. And, yeah, that's where it sort of started from. But uh, it was never something that I ever did to try and rattle my opponent. It was more purely my end of the court and showing the emotion of what I was feeling at the time. Um, and I always played my best tennis when I was pumped up and, and playing with a lot of emotion and energy. The other match against Federer was fourth round of the Australian Open 2004 when he got the better of you, I think think for the first time certainly for the first time in a, a major tournament and in looking back on that it's almost like the end of your peak years at the era maybe when Roger and within a couple of years Rafa took over the mantle that you'd had how, how do you look back on that fourth round match in 04 I don't remember a whole heap about it to be honest um remember the fireworks going off yeah at times oh yeah there was quite a lot it must have been australia day was it yeah. it was um yeah it happened nearly every year i was playing but um yeah for me uh there were certain stages obviously where you know roger up until that point i'd had the better of him he'd won a couple of times i think against me but not in the bigger matches but we all knew what he was capable of doing and that's sort of the start of when he made his exceptional run basically um, and dominated the sport for the next 10 years or so so yeah it was a matter of, I think he got the self-belief in himself that he was able to do it against players and, and up until that point I was probably the one guy that he'd really struggled with especially head to head and he certainly made up for that after that I lost a lot of big matches to him uh, including the US Open final uh, where he destroyed me in straight sets later that year in 2004. And, yeah, he, he really went from strength to strength after that. You got to the Australian Open final in 2005. It was the centenary Australian Open. That must have been a, a very proud moment. How does that compare with the two slams that you won, even though you lost the final to Marit Safin? Uh, yeah, well, it's a proud moment. Um, more so because I got no regrets. I, I absolutely left everything out there. I won Sydney the week before, um, but I actually had a, a bit of a hip problem during the Sydney tournament. And so it was really, no one knew that going into the Australian Open. And I felt like every match was kind of an epic match for me, that whole Australian Open run in 2005. You had a five-setter against Nadal. Uh, yeah, that was in the uh, fourth round. Uh, but if you actually look at my draw, apart from not playing Federer at any stage in the tournament... I'd say that was my hardest draw that I'd ever played in a Grand Slam. Um, I played Anna Clement first round, uh, second round James Blake, who was not seeded, third round Juan Ignacio Cella, Rafa in a fourth round, now Bandy in, in a quarter, uh, Roddick in a semi, and then Safin in a final. So if you actually look at the names of guys, even Arno Clement in the first round, who had been a finalist of the Australian Open not that long before, um, I, I felt like that was probably as hard a draw as you'll ever be given. And it felt like every match was an epic encounter for me, um, and I wasn't able to practice on my days off in between matches, but I was just riding this massive wave of emotion from the Australian public to be honest. It felt like the whole country was behind me for those two weeks. And um, 
Yeah, I was able to leave it all out there. I came slightly short in the end against uh, Marat, who was just too good on the day. Um, but, yeah, it was an unbelievable feeling to, to finally you know get through to an Australian Open final and something that I'd worked extremely hard in that off-season as well at the end of the 2004 season. Uh, in the pre-season, I'd, I'd done as much work as I'd ever done off the court to give myself a chance of winning it. You carried on playing singles for another 11 years after that. You retired at the 2016 Australian Open. Looking back, do you think you should have achieved more beyond 2005? Or do you think actually that, that what you achieved between 1999 and, say, the beginning of 2004 was an incredibly phenomenal body of work? Um, potentially, I, you know, maybe I could have, especially... Uh, yeah, oh six, oh seven, oh eight, those kind of years. But then, after that, I had some uh, body issues, and the surgeries really set me back um, in a lot of ways. But I just, I love the sport of tennis, and I love competing, and I love pushing myself to try and get the most out of myself. But the second half of my career was certainly hard because it was a lot more stop-start. Towards the end of my career, I played with a foot problem that the surgery just, um, the first surgery I had didn't fix it. And then I continued on for four or five years before ending up having the fusion in the toe because no one was 100% sure that I was going to be able to play again. But it got to a stage that bad that I had no choice but to go down that path. Um, In the end, I wish I did that five years earlier, had that surgery, um, because I felt like I would have been playing pain-free and I would have been able to train off the court the way that I wanted to train, which was probably the most frustrating thing for me because I love competing, but I felt like I wasn't, couldn't prepare as well to go out and compete purely because my body wasn't able to do that. You then became Davies Cup captain. Given how passionate you were as a player for Australia, how does it feel to be Davies Cup captain? Yeah, it's an incredible honour because the guys that I've had uh, as captains, you know, especially Nuke, Fitzy and Pat Rafter, you know, have done everything for Australian tennis. So I, I feel like it's a massive responsibility for me to be there. And I'm really just trying to do the same as what Nuke and Rochi did for me. Um, and I feel like I've been able to do that, especially with some of the younger guys coming through now. Alex Diminar, for example, will do absolutely anything for the Australian Davis Cup team and for his teammates and his country. And that's what, you know, the history and tradition, we're very fortunate to come from a country that has that um, and really just trying to pass that on to, to these younger guys now and, and getting them wanting to play Davis Cup and win as a team. And there's something really special, even though the Davis Cup competition still changed in a lot of ways. Um, playing for your country, there is no greater honour. So I feel very fortunate to have that responsibility and it's not something that I take lightly. When you said that Newcomb, Roach and Fitzgerald really understood you, are you able to bring some of that psychological knowledge that you learnt from them to understanding some of the less easy Australians uh, available for selection? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But it's something I've had to work on as well because, you know, taking over the team from uh, straight out of playing, there's certain expectations that you expect from players, I guess, in terms of how you trained and how you went about it. And just understanding all the different personalities and how they tick and what motivates them and how best I can motivate and inspire them to get them to the level they need to be when they go out to play. 
um, that's a challenge and it's not easy. And that's where you've got to know your players inside out, basically, and what makes them tick. And, and that's something you continue to work at. Um, and just having that, that bond or that trust with those players as well, because you know, when you're out there, there's certain pressures and expectations that if you haven't played Davis Cup or haven't played for your country, you, you, people wouldn't know what that is or what it feels like. And so knowing how to deal with them when they're under pressure or under stress, that's something that I continue to work at. At your peak as a Davis Cup player, there was a move towards getting team colours. The clothing company you were with at the time was resisting that. I gather you one day went with your agent and dyed a number of shirts gold and a number of pairs of shorts green because you were so keen to play in the gold and baggy green of Australia. Yeah, I, I think, going back, I think I was the first one to do it, to be honest. And it was something that I, um, yeah, I wanted to do badly, uh, was play. And I think it's got something to do, you know, growing up and watching cricket and, and you know, guys getting to represent in their colours. And I think it's something great about the team competition that you can do that. And so, yeah, I, I was a big advocate to try and have that put in. Uh, and it's something pretty special when you look back now and see all the other teams wearing it and with their country name on the back of their shirt. And uh, I think it tops it off nicely. You talked about getting the gold blazer of Australia. You're now getting the blazer of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. What does it mean to you to be a Hall of Famer? Um, it's an incredible honour and, and something that makes me really proud um, to think you know, it's something as a player I never ever thought of. You know, being into the inducted into the Hall of Fame or something I always looked up to. My idols, um, you know, they belonged in there, and not something I ever strove to to try and make it into the Hall of Fame. I just tried to get the absolute most out of myself, and and to walk through the museum here in Newport and and see some of my memorabilia up with the likes of Valander, Edberg, Lendl, um, all the greats of the game. And then I go back and see Nuke and Rochi and all the top Australians. It's, it's, yeah, it gives you goosebumps, to be honest. Uh, something I'm extremely proud of. I've always loved the history of the sport and to somehow have had a small part in that now is, is something really special. You've got your own kids. You deal with plenty of kids on tennis courts. What advice do you give them? What advice do you feel most comfortable giving young players? Oh, first of all, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to enjoy the, the journey of being a tennis player. Otherwise, you'll never fulfil your potential. But I think always to, to have no excuses, to go out there and lay it on the line, you know, give 100% all the time. I think you'll have no regrets when you look back at the end of your career. And uh, I think that's the biggest thing is every single time you step onto a tennis court, whether it's on the practice court or the match court, uh, to try and get the most out of yourself. Leighton Hewitt, thank you for sharing your recollections with us. No worries. Thanks, mate. A big thank you to Leighton for today's tennis-worthy conversation. If you like what you heard, please share this show with somebody who's interested in a winning mindset in Australian pride, Davis Cup, or the game of tennis in general. The greatest compliment you can give us is to share this show with those you care about. Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you back next time.